You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Thank you, Boris. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. That was U.S. President Joe Biden stumbling to remember the name of uh, Scott Morrison, the Australian prime minister. Forgetting someone's name is one thing, but forgetting the name of your ally, who you'll be selling nuclear-powered submarines to, is quite another thing. The U.S., U.K., and Australia announced on Thursday an historic military pact known as AUKUS. Besides receiving nuclear secrets, Australia will also be welcoming more American troops and warplanes. There was one thing that we didn't hear in this announcement, China. But that didn't stop Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman Zhao Lijian from responding. The nuclear submarine cooperation between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia has seriously undermined regional peace and stability, intensified the arms race, and undermined international non-proliferation efforts. The export of highly sensitive nuclear submarine technology to Australia by the U.S. and the U.K. proves once again that they are using nuclear exports as a tool for geopolitical gambit and adopting double standards. Speaking of exports and geopolitics, on the same day this all happened, China submitted an application to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, otherwise known as CPTPP. It's the successor to the trade pact that the Trump administration abandoned back in 2017. We're going to hear from our Washington bureau chief, Rob Delaney, and we're also going to hear from our man in Brussels, Finbar Birmingham. The AUKUS announcement hasn't just shocked the French, who thought they had a $90 billion deal with the Australians, but it's also got the European Union questioning how deep its alliance with the U.S. is. There's a lot to talk about this week, so let's get on with the show. Rob Delaney is our Washington, D.C. bureau chief, and he joins us. Hi, Rob. Hey there, Chad. How are you? Good. Uh, Thanks for joining. We woke on this side of uh, the world this morning to your story about a new strategic treaty between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. But let's cut straight to the chase here. The U.S. and Australia already had a military pact. It's called the ANZUS Treaty. And all three nations already worked together in the Five Eyes Intelligence Pact. And then, of course, the Queen of the United Kingdom is also the Queen of Australia and appears on, on the country's money. So what exactly has been agreed to here? Well, very specifically, it seems to be about particular kinds of advanced technologies, and the the first and foremost being nuclear submarine technology. So it appears that they wanted to form this trilateral partnership because it's going to be handling nuclear material. That becomes immediately, that becomes extremely sensitive. So, for example, you could not have any kind of agreement like this going on within the Quad, for example, because it was just a few years ago in the uh, in the Obama administration where there was a lot of work to try to figure out how to acknowledge the fact that, for example, India does have a nuclear capability, but how would the U.S. figure out a way to supply to acknowledge India's possession of nuclear technology and at the same time uh, so that it could move forward with closer relations to India. So basically, I think a large component of this is just the fact that once you start talking about nuclear material, it becomes very important to try and manage that as closely and as narrowly as possible. 
Yeah, and, and, and within the press conference, there was a, a whole lot of focus on, a quote, securing the Indo-Pacific. In your article, it quoted an unnamed U.S. official saying, quote, this is not aimed at or about any one country, end quote. But what are you hearing from analysts and sources about this part? You know, is this about China? Well, when you run it by analysts for comments about this and say, well, they said very specifically that this was not specifically about China, you can kind of hear the eye roll there. And uh, the answer is, of course, this is about China. But I think the overall strategy is just that, you know, we, we see the Biden administration doing everything that it possibly can to try and dissuade China from its increasingly high uh, military profile, its increasingly uh, aggressive forward posture, but to try and do that in a way that sort of reduces some of the friction. While obviously Washington and the Biden administration has a strong interest in trying to lower the temperature, we're trying to kind of manage what's happening in and around the South China Sea in a way that, for example, the Obama administration did not. We have to remember that a lot of, for example, the island-building exercises that uh, ch- that China conducted in the South China Sea occurred in the Obama administration. So the Biden administration, because he, of course, Biden was vice president at that time, but I, I think he sees that there's this very strong bipartisan consensus in Washington that China needs to be dealt with in a much more aggressive manner, in a much more forthright manner. And so the idea is that he's trying everything he can, mostly through these alliances, to make it clear to Beijing that there are certain I don't want to say red lines because people get a little bit nervous about red lines because once you once you mention them, you're committed to them. But anyway, He's doing everything he can to form alliances so that he will prevent China from making any more moves that could be seen as national security threats, not only to the U.S., but of course to its allies in the region. But he wants to do that in a way that's not going to provoke a military response. So I think that's why we have them saying, at pains to say, this is not directed specifically at China, even though it's pretty clear to everyone, including China, that it does, in fact, involve China. And so uh, the press conference with uh, Boris Johnson, uh, Joe Biden, and Joe Biden's friend from down under came just a, a few weeks after China's ambassador to the U.S. made his first public speech. And in that speech, he warned about the, quote, disastrous consequences if the U.S. were to try to suppress China using a Cold War playbook. You know, have you heard anything from the Chinese ambassador or the Chinese embassy in reaction to today's press conference? Well, uh, we, we did reach out to the Chinese embassy in Washington, and uh, very quickly they gave us a response that was, uh, how should I say, it wasn't as belligerent as the kind of language that you just recited from Ambassador Gong. So I can read a few lines. It's, they say, exchanges and cooperation between countries should help expand mutual understanding and trust. Countries should do more things that are conducive to solidarity and cooperation among countries and regional peace and stability. And of course, they also bring in the, uh, they, they should shake off their Cold War mentality, ideological prejudice. So it's, it's very, how should we say, the, the language is, is quite tame compared to the language that Ambassador Qinggang was using. And of course, a lot of the language that the so-called wolf warrior diplomats 
also use. So I think it's interesting that the initial response, of course, was really not as belligerent as it could have been. But we do have to keep in mind that this is a response that we got very shortly after the press conference, Biden, Morrison, and Johnson. And as we know, there will certainly be more deliberation in Beijing about how to respond to this. So it's quite possible that we are going to see uh, more fiery language coming out about this. It remains to be seen. At the same time all of this is happening, we also have sort of this cat and mouse game that's being played out on the opposite side of the Pacific, where we have the PLA Navy and the U.S. Coast Guard off the coast of Alaska sort of going back and forth with each other. So what's the backdrop to this? What are you hearing about this? Well, that was interesting because the Coast Guard, of course, seeing these ships, there really wasn't much of a response from the Defense Department, the State Department. In fact, the Coast Guard said that they did go by the standard protocol for ships that are crossing through other countries' exclusionary economic zones which uh, which is where these uh, PLA ships were traversing. But it's important to note that this is in an area we know as exclusionary economic zone. It is not the actual territorial waters. That would be a much different scenario. But in any case, the, the, the ships went through. The, uh, the Coast Guard noted their presence. There was the standard protocol of contact, and then the ships kind of went their own way. And also, it's, it should be noted that it's not unprecedented. It was back in 2015, there were several PLA ships that moved through the same waters, also uh, without incident. So I guess the, the only way to interpret that is just that Beijing is trying to flex their muscles a bit. They're likely saying, Okay, you you talk about international waters, free and open seaways. Well, that's what we're doing. So in case this ever became an incident or if it became a point of contention that broke out into the open, I guess that's what we're likely to hear. But I think both sides realize, and I think the U.S. side realizes that these boats, although they're quite far from China, there's only so much that the U.S. can say about the fact that they're passing through this zone. But I think the more important issue, though, is that China has considered itself to be a quote-unquote near-Arctic country. And, of course, the actual Arctic countries, and and when I say the actual Arctic countries, I'm talking about uh, the Arctic Council, which, uh, which includes the U.S., Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, and Sweden, and that's it. They find that language questionable, especially, of course, the U.S. We just had a couple of months ago, we had some U.S. military officials in a discussion at the Wilson Center about the strategic importance of the Arctic. And we had this one official saying, uh, the, the quote was, Beijing's claim to be a near Arctic nation was a, quote, kind of mind boggling statement. So there's really a lot of skepticism and there's a lot of pushback about the idea that China should have access to the Arctic the same way that these other eight countries do. And even as this is going on in, in China, whether it's a sort of response to what's been going on into the South China Sea or just asserting their near Arctic beliefs that, that their rights to travel the Arctic. We, we've also got sort of upcoming the first face-to-face meeting between the group known as the Quad. It seems that Joe Biden has summoned the leaders of India, Japan, and Australia to come to the White House, to come to Washington. 
So what's the significance of having such a meeting face to face? Uh, well, I mean, I think when when we had Biden's first in-person meeting with uh, with the head of state was with uh, with Japanese Prime Minister Suga, and at that time, he said uh, something along the lines of the uh, face-to-face encounters are are the best way to get business done, or something along those lines. And so I think that's Biden's way of saying if, if the the matters and the alliances and the partnerships that are most important to him are the ones where he will make the effort to engage in a way that's co-present. He wants to be in the room with people. He wants to look at them as he talks to them. Uh, so anyway, so I, I think whether or not the other three leaders were summoned, I think it's hard to say uh, what sort of negotiations were involved in that. I I think what we can say, though, is it's quite significant to get the leaders of um, India and Australia and Japan uh, together at the same time in Washington. I I think it, it says a lot about the fact that whereas previously, I think there was some question about how much of a commitment India and, and Japan in particular were going to make in, in terms of uh, investing their resources and investing their sort of geopolitical capital into this grouping. But the fact that they are arriving in Washington next week is certainly quite significant. And I, I assume Scott Morrison's name will actually be on the guest list this time. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there was a little bit of a hesitation there, uh, as as uh, by in in the press conference today. Uh, hopefully, they will uh, they will get that smoothed out when Prime Minister Morrison does arrive. And before we uh, wrap up, I wanted to turn to what I think when we looked at the beginning of the week, we thought was going to be the big news that uh, Joe Biden and and Xi Jinping had their first phone call in seven months. And so I wanted to go back and recap that a little bit, that there's been some reporting that Biden tried to get a meeting with Xi and she said no. But what, what are you hearing about the call? Well, we're hearing dead silence from the White House itself, other than to deny that, that that's the case. But there are, uh, of course, we've seen numerous reports saying that that there was some kind of hesitation uh, on the part of uh, Xi Jinping. It's hard to say. I, I don't think at, at this point, until we get a, uh, a White House official to go on the record to state what had happened, I don't think there's any way to know whether or not there was pushback from uh, from the Chinese side, uh, from Xi Jinping. And I think that just, that's kind of emblematic of, of that particular call because we don't have a lot of details about what they spoke about. We have uh, slightly differing accounts from the White House and from the Chinese side. For example, the Chinese side stating that the U.S. side uh, restated their, their commitment to the One China Principle. The White House readout didn't include that. They spoke for 90 minutes, but we know very little about what they said to each other, given that they did speak for 90 minutes. So I, th- I think we're going to have to, to wait and, and see uh, whether anyone offers uh, any more information on the record about uh, what the two sides said. And is there any thought of, of there uh, ultimately being a transcript on this? I, I know during the Trump administration, there, there was a lot of... Uh... People, you know, saying, well, why aren't we seeing transcripts of conversations with Vladimir Putin and other people? So, you know, any sense about where ultimately we may see something like that? 
I'm not holding my breath that the White House or the State Department will release a transcript. I think if they were planning to do that, they would have they would have given the press a heads up that that might be coming. And I think the further we get from that moment in time when they spoke uh, and the more developments pile up, like the ones we saw today where we had the announcement of the uh, the, the, the trilateral agreement with uh, Australia and the UK, I think the, the, the likelihood fades that we will get, uh, we'll get a straight up account, we'll get a readout, we'll get a transcript of the conversation. Yeah, well, for, you know, the, the moment, I guess it looks like Xi Jinping's not going to break his streak of uh, uh, spending more than 600 days in China. Well, Rob, thanks for your recap on this. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot more uh, discussed about this in the coming weeks. So uh, we'll follow your coverage on SCMP.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Chad. China attaches importance to its all-round comprehensive strategic partnership with Germany, including military-to-military cooperation. China is ready to conduct friendly exchanges on the basis of mutual respect and mutual trust and hopes the relevant party can create a favorable condition for this. That was Yao Lijian in the briefing we heard at the top of the podcast. This statement comes just a day after the German frigate Bayern was denied permission to visit Shanghai. Finbar Birmingham is joining us on the line for Brussels. He's going to tell us more about his reporting trip to Germany ahead of the upcoming elections there, as well as the EU's response this week to all the news we've seen. We've just heard from uh, Rob Delaney in, in Washington on the new military alliance between Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. What's been the reaction of the EU to this? What are you hearing in Brussels? We haven't had any official reaction yet, Chad, but there's definitely a sense here in Brussels that the honeymoon period with the Biden administration is over. Um, We already had that sentiment after the Afghanistan crisis, the quick withdrawal and the perceived lack of consultation in the European capitals, rightly or wrongly, was seen as proof that the US wasn't a reliable partner, at least in some quarters of, of the European Union. We saw after that event, uh, we saw a lot of talk about drilling down on the European Union's strategic autonomy, the concept whereby Europe would operate independently from both the US and China. Remember, this was the driving philosophy behind the investment deal with China and the decision to complete it weeks before Biden came into office. After four years of Trump, the EU didn't want to be dependent on the US. And I think this will will reinforce that. You know, the French are totally up in arms. We had a French minister this morning saying that they've been stabbed in the back because they've lost a $90 billion deal with the Australian government to build the submarines. Now, at a time when the European economy, when the French economy is in the doldrums, that's a huge amount of money. Just to quote you from the French this morning, the US choice to exclude an EU ally and partners such as France from a structural partnership with Australia At a time when we're facing unprecedented challenges in the Indo-Pacific shows a lack of coherence that France can only note and regret. Now, I just want to point out the timing of this, which is absolutely exquisite. It's Thursday, and today the European Union will formally announce its own Indo-Pacific strategy. So this is supposed to be one of the cornerstones of Europe's geopolitical policy. It's all about building partnerships with allies, both in the region, such as Australia, but also, you know, these so-called like-minded partners, Uh, in the West, the UK and the US. And, you know, on the eve of this, uh, we've got this news that the UK, the US and the the Australians are basically freelancing on this um, submarine deal. So the timing for Europe is extremely embarrassing. It's also come just before the launch of an EU-US Joint Trade and Technology Council, which is also aimed at containing China. So I think in some quarters of the European Union, this is viewed as, um, you know, 
the US is on one hand going around the world striking all these deals with so-called like-minded partners on how to counter China's rise. On the other hand, how can it possibly keep all these partners and allies happy when they, they seem to be competing each other's with each other for America's resources and attention. So, look, we're waiting to sort of get some formal comment from the European Union whether or not that will come, but it it certainly won't go down too well here. Yeah, and at at the same time, just across the channel, you've got China's ambassador to the UK being barred from Parliament on Wednesday. So uh, why did this unfold, and and what was that dispute about? This is a fairly straightforward one. This was um, The UK has a number of different factions on China, one of which is a fairly friendly all a parliamentary group on China, which is a group of politicians who favor engagement and positive relations with China. And these had invited the, the Chinese ambassador to the UK, uh, Zheng Zuguang, to attend uh, a sort of summer reception drinks on Wednesday. This was supposed to be held on the terrace of the Houses of Commons. But last week, there was a bit of a debate in the parliament about this. They wanted this event to be cancelled because, you know, you remember that the um, China and the UK both engaged in tit-for-tat sanctions in March during which four British MPs were sanctioned by China. Now, the argument from British MPs is how can you invite the Chinese ambassador into the British parliament at a time when there are members of that parliament sanctioned by China? They're banned from entering China. They're banned from entering Hong Kong and Macau. They're banned from transacting with Chinese, Hongkongese or Macanese entities. So this argument won out. The speakers of the Houses of Lords and Commons on I think it was Tuesday now, I'm losing track of the days here because it's been very hectic. They basically ruled in favour of these MPs and said, no, this ambassador cannot enter the chamber while the sanctions remain in place. Uh, we've had sort of the usual backlash from Zhao Lijian, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, saying this is, you know, out of order and so on. I, I don't know that we'll see massive escalation in this one. It's not entirely surprising. It seems fairly logical that the ambassador wouldn't be able to enter the parliament. And I don't know what China really can do in retaliation, because it's not as if there's going to be a British ambassador in the Chinese parliament anytime soon. Yeah, I, I doubt the British ambassador has been invited to uh, the, the latest gathering of the People's National Congress. But uh, let me ask you about this. You've recently completed a, a reporting tour through Germany. You accurately predicted that the German frigate Bayern would not be stopping in Shanghai. But the biggest headlines of the week really is the upcoming German federal election. Yeah, the federal election is in, so it's about 11 days away, and it's really getting to crunch time. We've been following it for a long time. I just came back from a week in Berlin, and before that, I was in the Ruhr Valley for a week. So a fortnight sort of trying to take the temperature and understand what's happening with regard foreign policy, what role is China playing in the election. Disappointed to report China's playing no role whatsoever. It's really quite low down the priority list for German voters who are mostly understandably focused on COVID, environment, healthcare, economy, the things that everybody cares about. I mean, when I think back to when I was uh, voting back in Northern Ireland, certainly I didn't really think about foreign policy when I was casting my ballot, but I think that's fair enough. Um, but it's also been absent from the debates, you know, like the three uh, candidates for chancellor have held a number of public debates. Only one foreign policy issue has crept into the recent debates, and that was Afghanistan, which held the limelight for about a week and then fell away and was replaced with domestic issues once again. So I went to Berlin to try and sort of find out where does each of these parties stand on China. I came away with a with a view that 
I don't think that there will be any radical overhaul in the German-China relationship after the election, um, barring a great upset in which the Green Party would hold the chancellorship, which is about a not 1% chance of happening. I think the favourite at the moment and the, the, who's leading the polls is the SPD, the Social uh, Democrat Party candidate, Olaf Scholz, who is now the vice chancellor and the foreign minister. He's a strong favourite to be chancellor. And all the while, he has studiously avoided saying too much about China on the campaign trail. Um, we know from a debate in June that he holds fairly mainstream views in German terms. He described decoupling back then as a fantasy. Uh, he was previously the, the mayor of Hamburg, in which point he had very sort of good relationship with China. This is the biggest port in Germany. It's an important trade hub, of course. So the you know, close ties with China were kind of important. And then as the financial minister, finance minister under Merkel in this grand coalition of the SPD and the CDU, he was overseeing one of the few areas in which I suppose you could report positively on, on China. So the financial sector was the one sector in China that was actually opening up at the time when all these others were trying to get access. So he's probably looking back fairly favorably on these ties. He is positioning himself as the continuity candidate. Ironically, he is not from Merkel's party, but he is pitching himself as the Merkel's logical successor. He's not going to want to rock the boat on China if he becomes chancellor. Doesn't seem to want to rock the boat on anything, really. Um, another point to bear in mind is that his party, the, the Social Democrats, are very proud of a 35-year-old diplomatic relationship with China. They meet with the Chinese embassy in Berlin very regularly. They've got a standing appointment and they want to maintain this dialogue. So a mantra that was repeatedly given to me when I was speaking to SPD people in Berlin and in Germany's Western Ruhr Valley is we like to talk to people, not about people. So digging into it a wee bit more, I spoke with some other people and there will be some changes not radical overhaul, but maybe sort of changes by degree. I had a long interview with the SPD foreign policy spokesperson, Neil Schmidt in the Bundestag, who told me on a few specific points where they may change. Now, he described the EU-China investment deal as a, an outdated relic. He said this would have been good a good idea seven years ago before we had an era of modern trade agreements and investment agreements, which had sort of binding tenets on labor rights and environment and so on. So for the SPD, I do get the impression that this deal is dead politically. They will not try and make a special effort to resurrect it. On sanctions, I think that there's a general view in the party that more sanctions can be used if necessary, but they don't see them as being very effective. So, for example, if you've got a Russian businessman who has a lot of investments and assets in Europe, then sanctioning him is probably fairly effective because he can't uh, access those and he can't transact. But if you sanction a mid-ranking Chinese Communist Party official from Xinjiang, it's water off a duck's back. He's unlikely to have great sort of financial assets in Europe. Hong Kong, now this is an interesting one, reflects a broader sense of hopelessness I get in Brussels as to what can European nations do to counter what they see as, uh, as a, a severe crackdown in Hong Kong. And I, I get a sense that they've kind of given up. I spoke to the foreign policy spokespeople of the two top parties, the SPD and the CDU, and they both made the same mistake in thinking that the European Union has already sanctioned Hong Kong officials over the crackdown from Beijing. Of course, regular listeners will know that Hong Kong officials haven't been sanctioned by the European Union. Xinjiang officials have been sanctioned. But to me, this really illustrated how far down the pecking order Hong Kong has fallen. But in general, from the SPD I do think there's a sense that business has been trumping everything for too long. Um, so we may see a slow long-term reorientation, but I'm warning you now, you don't expect radical 
revolutions. Germans are very anti-revolution. They don't like to rock the boat these days, so I think we'll see change by degree. I've got a quote now from the interview with Schmidt, which I think might give an idea as to what their thinking is on China. Have we listened to this bit? And to recap, that was, was Neil Schmidt, who's the foreign affairs spokesman for the SPD. Finbar, uh, what, as soon as today, uh, when we're recording this podcast, we should be expecting the Indo-Pacific strategy coming down from, from the EU. And then how far away are we again from the elections in, uh, in Germany? Elections are on the 26th, which is next Sunday. So we will have an idea where we stand after that. But it's going to take a long time before we have a government because this is the most open race in history. There's likely to be a complex negotiating period to build a coalition. So it might be months before we have an actual government, which means, of course, that Merkel might be around for longer than people expected. Well, there'll be a lot to talk about in the coming weeks, particularly as we, we wait to see who is Germany's next leader and their relationship with China. Finbar, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Chad. Before we leave you today, it's my sad duty to let regular listeners know that that John Carter, uh, one of the key members of the team on the microphone here on the podcast for many years, has passed away. John was the editor of the political economy team here at the South China Morning Post and very much the reason that this podcast exists. He was a weekly regular with Finbar Birmingham and Joe Shin, who are with me now. Uh, Finbar, could you tell us a little bit about John and what he meant to the team here? Yes, Chad, well... Personally, I think, first of all, John was was a mentor for me, and I think that goes for many of the team, both in the political economy desk at The Post, but also in the wider newsroom. He was a huge presence, and we're all shocked and devastated. He taught me and colleagues so much about um, how to be a journalist, about how to deal with people, how to manage up and down, but also just simply about how to carry yourself as a human being and as a colleague. He was patient, caring, funny. He was kind and thoughtful. The word no did not exist in John's vocabulary. He always had time to talk, no matter how trivial the matter. He always had time for a beer after work. And I think podcast listeners will know that John had an uncanny ability to be able to take a step back and to view a situation analytically, how to piece together the puzzle. He was able to synthesize the various moving parts of economics, business, politics, basically what this podcast has been about for the last few years and to process them into digestible, infinitely quotable nuggets. And I think partially this is his background in wire journalism, given the ability to pick out the most important pieces of information from reams of mundane text. But I also thought I'd share a little anecdote that he told me in which I never got tired of hearing. And it was about when John was a graduate in America. He worked for a congressman in Washington as an aide. And before he became a journalist, he realized that he was earning peanuts when one day he was after a particularly frustrating shift in Congress in a taxi home. He got talking to the driver about how much money he made. And John realized he was in the wrong game when the taxi driver told him how much he earned. So he quit his job at Congress and started driving a taxi. And within a year or two, he was operating a fleet of about a dozen taxis. He'd be talking politics with all the officials from Washington in his taxi. He'd be talking business with the corporate guys and economics with the people from the Federal Reserve. And he started piecing these pieces together relatively early on. I think this helped laid the groundwork for his future career as a really successful journalist. And also like from what we've learned on the, we've seen on the podcast and heard on the podcast about his ability to piece together information from all these different worlds. I just love that story about John. And, and just to say that he was a very close friend for many of us and he would be missed greatly. 
Yeah, and I just don't know how to deal with with John not being with us here because I, I mean, he would have the right thing to say, you know. I, I think in the situation because of his experience. Um, Joshin, you manage the uh, co-manage the political economy desk with John here at the SMP. When you think back about John, how, how do you remember him and, and, and what he brought to the newsroom? Well, first of all, I think I know John actually much longer than we co-worked at the SMP. I first knew him back in early 2000, 2004, 2005. It's a chilly uh, Beijing winter, and he visited Beijing for the first time. I remember I entertained him uh, in a small Japanese restaurant with uh, lots of sake, and I think this is... Uh, has left a kind of good impression on him. He later moved his whole family to Beijing to stay in uh, China for a couple of years. And then my life I met again at SMP and both as the crew heads of the political economy team. And he still, I mean, taught me so much things about uh, the American culture, etc. And also, given his life experience in Frankfurt, you know, he still has this... Uh, this habit, when you have a coat, he was so Kazonghai, this is a German phrase that he would like to use. And he was uh, is widely recognized as the best voice to sing the uh, jingle bell in the Christmas come at the newsroom. So I, I really devastated by his uh, his departure. And for this podcast, I, I think I have to highlight that we are talking about really serious matters like uh, global geopolitics, uh, the rivalry between China and the United States, the triangle between uh, Beijing, Washington, and Brussels. But I mean, for the time talking about these topics, you can see the lively part of uh, John Carter. You can clearly see that this man is enjoying what he has been doing. He is uh, quite, you know, happy to share with all his experience, his insights of the whole story. It's almost like a teacher, you know, trying to explain something to a, to a, to a group of students. In the whole process, you can see how happy he was. He remembered all these uh, old days, sounds in the 1960s and the 70s, and sometimes he made great jokes about these uh, 1980 bands. So as Fing Barnes to you, you know, you, you know I, I really, really sorry for, uh, for John's uh, sudden departure. Yeah, and when I, I would go and speak to John, he always had a twinkle in his eye and had that deep, booming, wonderful laugh of his. And, you know, even in the most serious times, he, he knew how to, to really keep it light and give that insight. He, he brought gravitas, deep insight, and analysis uh, based on 40 years of working as a journalist covering trade and U.S.-China relations. We'll leave you this week with this tribute to him as well as a special sneak peek into what you didn't get to hear over the years on a few of the podcasts. And that was John's love of singing doo-wop and blues songs in the soundtrack each week before we started. The hits just keep coming from uh, President Trump, and it's only a matter of time um, before there's nothing left to sanction on either side. Uh, I, that, that's a joke. Um, there, there's so much... The relationship is so deep and so complex um, that there will always be something going on between China and the U.S., but the, the depth of the conflict keeps increasing. Trump's tr trade strategy, I mean, it was a vote-getter back in 2016, bashing foreign countries is always a good election strategy. And China at that time 
was easy to make a scapegoat for Americans' economic problems. The fact that the U.S. has made virtually no progress on this after four years and uh, more than two years of a trade war uh, suggests that it was a bad strategy to begin with and it's, uh, it's not helping the American economy at all. Because Hong Kong is the financial channel through which much of investment from the outside world into China flows through, hurting Hong Kong in, in the, uh, the hardline Trump view uh, will hurt China. And so that is what's going on here. It is not that Hong Kong is the competitor, it's China is the competitor and we're going to hurt China through Hong Kong. Weaponizing uh, their U.S. dollar holdings would effectively be an act of war. Now, we may be headed that way, but it would be an extreme measure. It's considered the nuclear option uh, because China, if it were to try to rapidly sell off its more than $1 trillion in U.S. Treasury securities, it would crash the market and it would hurt itself as much as anybody else. So to do this, is like a suicide bomber. You achieve your objective, but you destroy yourself. So that's an act of war, and that's why it's highly unlikely it would happen. But these are unprecedented times, so you can never say never. A month ago, even a couple of weeks ago, we were vaguely talking about a Cold War. I think we can say pretty definitively we have arrived at what looks to be a Cold War. We've, we started with the uh, trade war and then uh, the beginnings of a tech war, and this is the latest chapter in the tech war. Also, the financial war is heating up. The U.S. Senate has passed legislation that will require uh, Chinese companies listed in America to comply with uh, U.S. accounting standards by 2022, and if they don't, they must delist and leave America. Uh, that's that's the beginning of what is potentially the next chapter in this. Oh, when the load gets ready, you gotta move. Yeah. You may be high, you may be low. I'm rolling, John. Give us the outro kazoo song. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I think we've got our theme music ready for the election special. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we all have yeah. to have kazoo. We have to do it in harmony. The podcast marching kazoo band. Finbar, Joshin, thank you for joining us on this day. Thank you. Thanks, John. That was John Carter. He was funny. He was deeply caring of the people who work for him, and he was a true gentleman with a great sense of humor. John Carter will be deeply missed here at the South China Morning Post. That's all for this week. Stay safe. Bye for now, and we'll see you next time.